Hello, this is Adam. And Lubitsa. And we're the, we're the Cold Pizza Party Podcast. This is the Cold Pizza Party Podcast, and we are it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and today we're going to be trashing Vox.com, because it, it deserves a trashing. Um, let me start. But also because there's this whole fake news discussion going on okay. everywhere. And I think it's, like, really irresponsible and a little bit absurd. And obviously it's, like, very subjective what is fake news. And there are plenty of websites that have been recently, like, including, like, Naked Capitalism and Truthout that have been targeted by places like the Washington Post as being fake news. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I think it's important for us to point out that there's also plenty of websites like Vox and politifact there's other ones too we're gonna specifically focus on vox because there's been a lot of really good articles written about it Mm -hmm. but yeah so we're gonna take those as a jumping off point yeah but there are a lot of mainstream websites including the washington post that can be um can and should be attacked for their bias yeah yeah so you know hopefully we can kind of elucidate um our feelings on fake news and that article too where the Washington Post attacked like some of the websites you mentioned and others that we read sometimes too. Yeah. Was so weird. Well, it, it was, was also fake just news. wrong. Yeah. It was fake news because it relied on some anonymous Yeah. Like some weird anonymous non-profit. Yeah. Some just people that they wouldn't name or even say who these people were. Yeah. Not even in government. Like the I you know, newspapers are always using anonymous sources from government, which is a problem. But these were just random people who said, Oh, we've done some computer stuff and we're telling you that these websites are tools of putin yeah yeah and it was just some random organization that nobody knows who they are or what their agenda is or why they should be trusted it was this weird fake news Uh, attack on fake news um there's a an article on current affairs that i'm pulling this from called the necessity of credibility and it says, uh, one of the most ominous and sinister warnings about the threat of fa- fake news was found in, again, in the Washington Post. In late November, the Post Craig Timberg produced a detailed report alleging that much of the fake news on the internet was, in fact, carefully crafted Russian propaganda effort designed to erode Western governments through the spread of disinformation. The Post cited a nonpartisan group of researchers known as PROP or not? Well, if it's nonpartisan, I trust it. <laughs> the PROP stands for propaganda. Oh, okay. Yeah. PROP or Which not. Which is confusing. It makes me think they're not native English speakers. <laughs> Who or had just... identified more than 200 websites as routine peddlers of Russian propaganda during the election season, which combined audiences of at least 15 million Americans. Um, many news stories on the internet, the post suggested were not news at all, but lies propagated by Russia in order to further its own state interests. The post concluded that while there was no way to know whether the Russian campaign proved decisive in electing Trump, researchers portray it as part of a broadly effective strategy of sowing seeds of distrust, uh, in the U S democracy amongst its leaders. And they in this article they also point out they didn't what what was um considered propaganda was any of like anything that could be considered useful to the russian state whether it's true or not yeah and also any criticism of the united states could be considered useful to the russian government so that's why you end up with 
um, you know, media outlets like Naked yeah. Capitalism and Truth Dig. Um, you know, you know what I love about that last sentence you read from the Washington Post. It says researchers portray it as part of a broadly effective strategy of sowing distrust. Where else have you heard people just name anonymous researchers as an authority? Coast to coast and all oh, that shit. Oh yeah, yeah, ufology. Yeah. yeah, they're always like researchers have found good evidence for Bigfoot. That's true. Yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, anyway, like reading this just made me really think that we should talk about this idea of fake news mm-hmm. more broadly, and also the fact, like I said, that there's plenty of outlets that pose as real news, including the Washington Post and yeah. NPR, which carried this story a bunch. Yeah. That. Um, are just, you know, as terrible as anybody yeah. else. But we're going to talk more specifically about, well, we're going to use Vox as a launching off point, particularly uh, one article in particular that Nathan J. Robinson wrote for Current Affairs um, called Explaining It All to You. Um, and then we're going to draw on a couple other things, one from Freddie DeBoer, an old blog post. Um, the Baffler had a recent article about Vox and his newest issue by David V. Johnson or Johnston, I forget. Um, we might have one or two other articles in there, but we're going to focus. Yeah. We both read different articles, kind of, we read this article together and the Baffler one, and then we each read some other articles. So we'll just kind of share all of those links in the, um, show notes. Yeah. But there's like a lot of reasons that we could critique, um, you know, mainstream journalists, uh, journalistic outlets that people trust for being fake news, like using anonymous sources from the government like they're doing with these Russia hacks and other stuff all the time and plenty of things. But because we're going to talk about Vox, we're going to focus mainly on like, uh, what would you say? Like the, uh, view from nowhere. Um, well, just specifically about like why, um, websites like Vox, although you could include like PolitiFact and others, but mm -hmm. why, um, their like sort of ideology is really insidious. You mean Politico? No, PolitiFact. Okay. They do the same thing. Okay. They act like they're writing from, like, the view from nowhere. Right. Um, I mean, I can get into it right now if you want, but maybe <laughs> we'll wait a minute. Okay, we'll start. Uh, first, I want to read a headline okay. from Vox that will explain exactly why they are worthy of scorn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that headline is, robots aren't taking your jobs. Oh, I And know. that's the problem. I know. I yeah. saw that one, yeah. So if you read that headline and you don't have, like, a a twinge of hate in your heart for this website, then you can just listen to something else. So I think to understand Vox, you have to go back to the first article that Ezra Klein published when he, uh, when he launched the website and I'm not going to get too deep into it right now. I might come back to it later, depending how our discussion goes, but the gist of it is that, um, his view of democracy is that, we are founded on the notion that more information um, produces better outcomes. And that's just not true based on recent social science. So his idea uh, for Vox is that the, as he calls it, more information hypothesis is wrong. And what we need is a website that can like break things down for you and give you explainers and like bullet points on, you know, why you should believe what, we tell you to believe unfortunately effectively yeah the goal is like to explain just to ex- uh, to explain yeah and i mean i think one of the things that not is... to inform yeah yeah 
Right. Well, in the article, Nathan J. Robinson even talks about how he's like, why not call them like um, explorers instead of explainers, right? Like, mm-hmm. if it was going to be a, a neutral um, yeah. endeavor, like where you're trying to just teach people about a topic like taxation or something, why not explore the topic? Explaining yeah. it is a much more like it, it, it involves like making a strong judgment in a lot of cases or um, taking like facts and opinion and then ultimately calling it analysis. And right. it's your analysis. That's the explanation. Um, even though they, everything about how the website is presented um, makes you feel like it doesn't, this is, this is a serious endeavor where there's facts and um, you know, like even the way, not, so, not you don't get the sense that there's any opinion in a way it's like mm-hmm. kind of hidden from view and even how they like present like um you know their headlines are always like in yellow highlighter yeah. and yeah. um there's like you know bullet points and they use the stacks or yeah. cards or whatever they're like index cards yeah. you know it's all meant to sort of make you feel like you're studying for a test yeah and when you're studying for a test that usually means you're learning facts presumably not um opinions and so i think all of that kind of gears the reader into getting into this mindset of like okay i just need to learn what they teach me and then i'll Mm -hmm. excel at the cocktail party yeah yeah (laughs) it has a real a student aesthetic yeah i don't think they realize the cultural signification of that like what you're signifying culturally when you're saying these are the people you should listen to or like the kids who took meticulous notes in class. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I mean, I also think it's that kind of attitude that does blind them to their own uh, biases and weaknesses and ultimately Mm -hmm. to their own ideology. They just, the fact that they think they're writing from an ideologically neutral place is like actually, I think really, yeah their biggest pitfall right. you know yeah because obviously that in itself is ideologically laden yeah. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um i think also that aesthetic explains why they were so in the bag for hillary yeah alone that's enough yeah to explain it because she's the ultimate you know um kid who did her homework well, presidential I mean, candidate and the way she was sold was as the candidate with the most or the presidential candidate with the most experience or whatever i mean it was like saying she studied the hardest for this test you know yeah definitely well i want to go back to the ezra klein article well i guess it goes to what we're saying about the neutral viewpoint which is why i think of it so uh his main like centerpiece of his article talking about uh why more information is not necessarily better are some social science experiments done by this political scientist kahan dan kahan and like one of them in particular, Dan Cahan got, um, you know, test subjects, got a group of people together and gave them an article about, he did it with multiple subjects, but one example was gun control. And he gave the same article to some conservatives and some liberals. And the article is full of statistics and numbers about gun control. And people are supposed to read the article and come to a conclusion afterwards. And it turns out that basically everybody agreed with their biases, no matter what the article said, whether the article was meant to convince you, because it's not a real article, right? It's just an experiment. So if the article was meant to convince you of one point of view, it didn't matter. 
people who are liberal came out with a liberal conclusion. People who are conservative came out with a conservative conclusion, despite all the, you know, uh, fake facts that were in the article. But what was really re- remarkable to Ezra Klein and, and to me and the guy, whatever, the guy who, Cahan, people who are better at math were more likely to get it wrong. So if you're a liberal and you're really good at math and the article is meant to convince you that gun control is bad, you are more likely than a stupider person to um, get, draw the wrong conclusion. So Ezra Klein says this is the chief reason why we need journalism that doesn't just give us a bunch of facts. We need ones that sort through it. Although there already, I think you're seeing the fault in the ideology because like this is this is the problem, right? Is like facts alone or statistics, in fact, not uh-huh. even facts, because statistics can, as we all know, like, right, 89% of statistics can be uh, made up, you know, yeah, to, yeah. No, yeah. to like, I mean, obviously, I just made that statistic up. As, but anyway, the point is that statistics alone are not the reason why people decide whether they are for or against gun control, no. right? The the reason people are for or against gun, gun control has everything to do with their morality, their life experiences, yeah, their, their cultural milieu. Exactly. Deeply held emotional ideas about how government should and be in your life. Absolutely. Like like class. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, things like that. Like things that are more important than statistics, but certainly... Um, I guess this is like the crux of everything for me when it comes to Vox is that they are so convinced that the best way to do politics is policy and (laughs) Uh, details and statistics. There's there's a quote in here where Ezra Klein says the point of politics is policy. Yeah. That's not true. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so this is to me like ultimately the biggest like I've said, problem with Vox is that by focusing so much on, you know, explanations and details, you can completely skirt like morality or just your ideals of how the world should be or or even just your underlying assumptions and biases, right? Like, uh, yeah, I, yeah. So when you don't talk about any of that stuff then what is the point of having articles that are filled with statistics and you know arguing anything it's all empty without first those more substantive basic things that make up most people's politics yeah yeah also there's a really obvious problem um with what with using this experiment to found vox this experiment would suggest that we shouldn't be having dumb people write articles and explain things to us, right? Yeah. Not smart people who are going to get caught up in their biases. But the whole point of view of Vox is that we're going to be the smart ones that explain things to you, right? Yeah, yeah. Like we were talking about their aesthetic. Another obvious problem with it, like you're saying, um, later on, and I didn't notice this the first time I read this article, but only like the second time I saw this quote, Ezra Klein says, there's a simple theory underlying much of American politics. It sits hopefully at the base of almost every speech, every op-ed, every article, and every panel discussion. That's a weird choice, right? Mm -hmm. Most people don't think of panel discussions when they think of American democracy. No, no. But moving on, this idea. It courses through the Constitution and is a constant in President Obama's most stirring addresses. This idea is what we might call the more information hypothesis, 
the belief that many of our most bitter political battles are mere misunderstandings. And he's implying that if we all knew the facts, then we could make better decisions. Right. And he thinks that that is how the founders set Which up this country. Which is funny because the example he used tells you that that's not true. You just gave no, the no, facts yeah. in that article that was against gun control no, to no, a no. bunch of people. They knew the facts, they learned the facts, and then they still drew a different conclusion. No, right? no, no. Yeah, yeah, no. He's not ignoring that. But he's he goes on to say like that this this experiment threatens that point of view. But my point is that is not the way America was founded. America was not founded by these these guys who got together and thought how do we saw how do we set up a good country well if we want to make decisions we should all sit around a table and look at the facts and talk about yeah. it rationally that is not the way our country was conceived that's no, not the obviously. way it's supposed to work the founders god if you like if you actually read the way people thought and wrote back then it's suffused with morals yeah completely yeah yeah, they were they were very That's passionate about rationality. That's why they passionately disagreed but... with each other. Yeah. Those because each one of them thought they were trying to create like, if not the most moral country, then at least the, the one that made the most sense to yeah. them that f- would lead to their ultimate you know vision of how the world should totally. be. Totally, totally. There's this perspective. I I think I picked it up from half reading a Daniel Dennett book that. Um, during the like enlightenment we started having mechanics for the first time you know i mean you know mechanisms um what what were machines Mm -hmm. we started having machines for the first time so people started using machine metaphors to explain you know humans and society and that's that's where you get hobbes he's still halfway hobbes is still halfway between that body and machine metaphor and by the time you get closer to the um founders who read Locke and rousseau they're more acquainted with the idea of systems and machinery but they're still like still halfway through that period they're still so concerned with virtue and what mm-hmm. makes a virtuous country we listen to the jefferson podcast mm-hmm. um where the guy pretends to be thomas jefferson and answers questions and reads things written by jefferson he's very obsessed with american character and he thinks people just living in this frontier land creates a better character of person that will create a better democracy yeah that has nothing to do with rationality or looking at the Statistics. facts to make the best decision yeah. That point of view that Klein is embodying when he talks about that, that point of view is like endemic, is that the right word, to our time period, yeah. where we've moved beyond machines and now we have computers. Yeah. And we have this, I, only now could we have the idea that, oh, democracy should work like an algorithm that takes in all the inputs yeah. and creates the best possible output. That's how people think of the market, right? Yeah. That the market processes all inputs more efficiently and you know better than any human yeah, could. Yeah, yeah. He's like confusing like, process with idealism basically right like you know that makes sense i'm just saying there's no way the founders could have seen the country that way yeah of course. that's not the way it was meant to be and of course like these metaphors for understanding humans always fall short so it's no surprise that klein goes into this project with the metaphor of thinking of democracy and humans like computers that ideally would process all information and find the right outcome and he finds that metaphor lacking of course you do yeah. It's not that's not the way humans or democracy works. And yet he still comes to the same conclusion. That's what I don't get about his piece that he goes through this experiment and in the end he just decides like we're going to do vox.com anyway. We're still going to look at well, that's what data I, that's what and numbers and try to process it that's for you. That's what I was saying is like he Yeah, halfway through his piece, he's talking about meeting this political scientist 
and he was like um oh i assumed i'd meet like a a doomsayer right Mm -hmm. someone with like an apocalyptic view of how impossible it could ever be to come together in a democracy as people because how are we ever going to make the right decisions but he's surprised that that guy doesn't feel that way he just thinks um dan cahan he just thinks that well we just need to like set up better systems so he has this example of uh that um what was the hpv vaccine a year or two ago I guess it was must have been three by this three years or so, where they created a, is it HPV or like what's the is that the one that can give you cancer? Yeah, I yeah. Think so. It's like an STD that you doesn't have really present symptoms until it makes you more likely to have cancer. So the government, sorry if this is getting a little long winded. I'm almost done. <laughs> so, uh, the government basically mandated that young teen women, young girls, get this vaccine. To prevent them getting HPV. Yeah. Because it was... They gave it to girls because it was ready for girls. And it was much harder to get it ready for men. It was going to take more time. So they thought the best thing we could do is give it to girls now. And Dan Cahan says... Well, this... Well, anyway... Sorry. This became a huge controversy. Um, Conservatives got really pissed because they are, you know, paranoid about their girls having sex, right? Right. We could talk about that. Let's not. (laughs) Let's not. So Dan Cahan's suggestion is like, well, what we need to do is understand my research and conclude that we need better systems so that maybe instead of giving them to girls right away, we waited until it was ready for everybody and we gave it to boys at the same time. That way conservatives would be more comfortable with it. Isn't that such a weird conclusion to draw from your research? It also just is not at all like a practically or like morally good decision. Like it means like, well, because... I don't know, some people are going to be uncomfortable with this idea. Let's not make it available to anybody who wants it, even though yeah. we have the ability to potentially save totally. lives. Like it, it also sets up this hierarchical technocracy where yeah. we just put scientists and smart people at the top who we assume are value neutral. Yeah. And they want to, we'll, they'll make decisions for everybody else, but they have to do it in a smart way so it tricks us into being happy with it. Just like Cass Sunstein and all the nudging stuff that Obama's into. Yeah. So that's the foundation of Vox. I think that basically covers all my notes about it here. Um, Basically, I think this article shows the seed of Vox's own destruction, like the futility of its own project. Yeah, well, so then I think from there we should talk a little bit more specifically about, like, Vox's ideology and also just, you know, how it functions. Yeah. So Vox has these explainers where they basically take facts and you know pretty much just their own opinions but they they don't seem to realize that involves their own opinions and make big declarative you know judgments or sweeping statements um where they kind of where they are telling you what to think right and they're not really leaving a lot of room for um anyone to disagree you know so in the article he has an example where it's like the 11 moments that define hillary clinton you know, it's absurd that there would even be exactly 11, <laughs> obviously. But Nathan J. Robinson mentions, like, these include uh, important milestones, like how the 2008 loss turned Hillary into a hipster, whatever <laughs> that means, but completely leave out Goldman Sachs and um, Clinton's devastation of Libya. Uh, so you can kind of see how 
even though it's a big declarative statement that would make you think, if you just read this article, you'll know the 11 moments that define Hillary Clinton. Obviously, you would be woefully ignorant of uh, her foreign policy and, um, you know, issues with how people understand her to be like a corrupt politician, right? If you, if these were actually the 11 moments that define her. Is it just full of like personal stories from her life? I mean, I assume so. Yeah, I didn't read the article. I mean, that's an ideology right there. That what's important is what kind of person she is, not what her policies are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, he says, Clinton appeals so perfectly to the Vox sensibility that its writers become puzzled when trying to figure out how anyone could oppose her. So Ezra Klein will ruminate on the mystery of why Hillary Clinton is distrusted by the public, but liked by those in her inner circle, concluding that it's because Clinton is a careful listener who prefers paying attention to the views of others rather than explaining her own. Klein doesn't mention the equally plausible thesis that Clinton is distrusted because she tells lies about things and treats the public with cynicism and contempt. (laughs) You know, um, you know, I read that article or at least part of it that he's talking about. Yeah. That Ezra Klein wrote on Hillary, not even going to get into the like issues of sexism that (laughs) while criticizing other people for being sexist, he repeatedly (laughs) makes essentialist, statements and assumptions about women and then p- broadly pushes them onto Hillary Clinton to tell us that that's why she's so special uh for being a woman but um but that article also like he's pointing out just completely missed the boat on any actual facts that are like important to voters like foreign policy or you know her history as a politician in the United States like I don't know. It was it was just so blind to like why people don't like Hillary and it it just couldn't it couldn't like honestly reckon with why people didn't like her, you know? It yeah. just sort of glossed over that or basically chastised the reader if they at all considered sympathizing with any yeah. of those viewpoints, you know? Yeah. I think um people get too caught up on the details and on the policy like the reason people don't like hillary clinton it doesn't really have anything to do with her specific actions it has to do with the general sense of the way she is to do with her specific well for you and i it has to do with her policy but like when you want to know well why did the so many people in the country prefer donald trump to hillary it's not because like it's because crooked hillary felt right like when he coined that it was like oh damn that that fits you know but it's like it's two competing views of what a president is is a president like a strong man who tells it like it is and is going to be, you know, assertive and whatever? Or is it a paranoid Nixonian? <laughs> <laughs> or is who it has, like an enemies list and everything's a secret and they have a secret yeah. server and they're destroying emails and records? Yeah. I mean, that's really. <laughs> well, I was going to say something more I know. <laughs> positive. I like, know. is it someone who like does their homework and you know, get straight A's, right? Is this a job interview or a popularity contest? Of yeah. course it's a popularity contest. Yeah. Um, yeah. And conservatives, con- Republicans were never going to flip to vote for Hillary because the conservative mindset wants a strong male leader. If not male, then masculine, like, what's her face? Thatcher. Mm. Yeah. And so then, um, you know, as the article kind of continues, um, he talks more about the 
obvious problems with their ideology more broadly, I guess. Um, and he cites like Freddie DeBoer when he says uh, in his critique of the Vox Explainer stance, uh, Freddie DeBoer <laughs> says in his critique of the Vox, uh, uh, <laughs> I can't, I cannot read I this. Can read it. Okay, you read this. You can this. just point quotes, point at quotes just and I'll read this. them. <laughs> As Frederick DeBoer says in his critique of Vox, the explainer stands as insidious because it disguises partisanship as objectivity, falsely assuming that there can be such a thing as a view from nowhere. Yes, thank you. Yep. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so basically, you know, this is what we were talking about before, where they hide the fact that they have a bias or opinion by declaratively announcing that this is the way things are. Yeah. So... These are the 11 moments that define Hillary. And if you think that Goldman Sachs is important, then you're wrong. And that's it. And there's no debate here, you know, because we said this is right. And we are the, right, deus, vox, vox deus, whatever this comes from, vox dei, little voice of God, basically, right? Like, you know, um, so there's no debating with us like we're going to tell you how it is and that's it and now that we've declared that these are the 11 moments yeah that's done so it really it it tells the reader like stop thinking right here right at the end of this sentence when we're we're done telling you what we've told you yeah that's it um and obviously that's a real problem especially in a democracy you know yeah like you're talking about the founding fathers, you know, these are people who, not that we should idealize the founding fathers any more than we do. No, less, but, much, much less. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I'm just saying, like, these were people who spent all of their time reading and writing and thinking and writing long letters and debating each other and thinking and writing and writing and thinking, yeah. you know, and so this and, idea that, that that's not what, that, that is something that, should be saved for the experts or for these oh, totally. refined technocrats or who I don't know whoever they think it should be saved for. Yeah. It's just like really, I mean, beyond and, elitist, it's kind of absurd. Like in a modern democracy, that, that... and the founder, the founding generation, they weren't debating what's the best way to provide pre-K childcare yeah. to our citizens. Is it a child tax credit yeah. or a sub like a rebate? They were talking about what makes a moral citizenry. What are the most important virtues for democracy? Yeah. Like Ben Franklin was constantly compiling lists of virtues to try to break down the essential virtues of what it means to be a human. <laughs> I just saw that recently somewhere. I think this, you read that, I read that Freddie <laughs> DeBoer quote. Yeah. And uh, later on, he says the whole notion of ideology free explanation of complex subjects is, of course, completely ideology laden yeah the pretense of neutral explanation just deepens the potential dangers of bias and in his article where those quotes come from it it was written during the primary and he was talking about that thing where vox let sent out an article wrote an article put out an article that said um bernie supporters don't want to pay for his programs Uh yeah so what vox did was they like they just sent a survey out to people what's uh, it was like wasn't it like basically asking if they like what programs they wanted and then like how willing they'd be to pay more yeah. taxes yeah right? and like what they felt they so they were just like see bernie's supporters don't want to pay for it because of course it came back yeah. that people don't want to pay more taxes yeah so but what he, what they didn't point out right like they there just were... pulled that out of the 
there were a dozen things they didn't point out. Right, but they pulled that completely out of context. Like, one of the things I know they didn't point out was that Bernie supporters were more likely than any of the other politicians' supporters to be willing to pay. Yeah, they were the most willing to pay. Yeah, and that wherever, even in other countries, I think, if you send out a survey like that, you'll find that um, people always want more programs than they're willing to pay for. That's just, like, a known fact about, like, in this type of political survey that that's, like, the type of thing you're going to get back. So it was essentially, like, they knew that that's what was going to happen, and they just... It's it's not even playing a trick because that's oh, I don't know it, it's it, propaganda yeah. it's like it's like push pulling but exactly on a ma- on exactly. to a mass audience they just set up an event yeah. so that they could write about it like yeah. they just faked a in a news oh, yeah, story that's basically fake news. that's yeah. really fake news yeah yeah what else oh and they also ignore the possibility that. Like, they assume everybody who says they don't want to pay more taxes, but they want more government services. They assume those people are, like, bad faith or stupid. But I'm sure a lot of people would say, like, um, yeah, I want these programs instead of military spending. Exactly. Or I want to tax the rich to pay for these programs. Exactly. Um, also, or huge... if you went back and talked to those people and had like a full conversation again, yeah. getting away from just boiling everything down yeah. to little numbers and statistics that we can pull out of context and then they don't mean anything and we can use them now, yeah, yeah. however we want for our own fake news story or whatever. You know, if you actually went back and talked to those people and showed them like, okay, well, here's the shortfall between how much you want to pay and these programs, but let's say universal health care will save this much in the long run you know like if you actually have conversations with people like the way in a lot of cases you see birdie doing in town halls and whatever people come back and are like oh okay that makes sense you know like no hillary's campaign is about more than just who has statistics or saying shit like oh well i guess reality has a liberal bias you know know. like (laughs) it's it's a conversation between people who all live together in a country and figuring out priorities together that's what doing politics is like that's a big part of how you do the work of governing this nation and all of this stuff i don't know to me gets me so frustrated because it's just such a distraction from any of that while proclaiming to be the most important way to understand politics hillary's campaign was playing that game about health care in yeah. town halls yes, and everything, I know. they were saying Bernie's plan is going to cost middle class families more tax dollars yeah. without saying that it's going to save them money on health care because they're not going to have to pay for it. Yeah. But at least her campaign is trying to win, right? I they're, guess. they're Of course, it's a bad faith argument, but they're just trying to win. Yeah. Vox is supposedly sorting through all the information to give you the best, most accurate conclusion, yeah. but they did the exact same thing. Yeah, totally. The, I think... I think Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, sure. the re- the real reason that Vox is against like Medicare for All, uh, this is probably the strongest quote in this Nathan J. Robinson article, policy wonks love policies because they get to explain them. Yeah. Everyone else hates complicated policies because everyone else has to be subjected to them. Yeah. The more inscrutable and Byzantine the policy, the more jobs there are for wonks. Yeah. yeah. So that's why they're always going to be against single payer. Yeah. And because they just, in their minds, think that there must be a more complicated, convoluted way to make this better. Otherwise, there's no justification for 
who I am and what I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I would debate you that that's the best line because there are so many good lines in this <laughs> article and it is like legitimately funny. Like I really strongly recommend reading it. And yeah. I just really like all of his writing. It's so clear and mm-hmm. well put. But anyway, one of my favorite lines going along with that is um, explanation has also increasingly become associated with the notorious act of mansplaining, the ubiquitous tendency of male know-it-alls to buttonhole passing women and show off their learning at generous length. Fittingly, the experience of reading Vox can often feel like a protracted blind date with a garrulous male, capital Hill staffer. So, I don't know, I thought that was just a really great encapsulation of what reading Vox can feel like, especially because it is that same feeling like when someone's mansplaining something to you they're talking like the whole that's an overused term but i know i've experienced that for example when um we were like younger and i'd be like talking to some cute guy or whatever and he'd start talking to me about music and just assume that i because i'm a girl i don't know i only listen to Katy perry or something you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. and start explaining um about like the virtues of whatever band or genre as if you know yeah. and And what's always interesting is that guys like that do use these really declarative statements to, even though they're just stating essentially their opinions about music of all things, it's like by asserting this and being assertive and making these declarative statements that they're like an authority. Like that's, that's where their authority comes from is just being willing to make these declarative statements. And a lot of times the minute you start to debate with one of those people, because you also have strong opinions they're not that's it they're done they don't get to explain anymore they're not interested you know yeah well they're just not interested anymore they it's what you were saying like they love policy loves policy wonks love policy because they get to explain them those guys love talking about music not even necessarily i mean i'm sure they do enjoy it but because they get to explain it to other people because in that moment they get to be the the center of attention and the person that knows the most in the room as yeah. far as they're concerned. If And if anybody else knows something, then, oh, it's not as interesting anymore. Yeah, yeah. That reminds me, was it in this article? Somebody was talking about being on a panel with Matt Iglesias, and they were talking about, I don't know, labor law or oh, something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you have that? Uh, yeah. While you're looking for it, yeah. here is another great quote from Nathan Robinson in this article. Much of Iglesias' work is simply boring. Iglesi- Iglesias likes writing about burritos. Yeah. <laughs> Well, did you see the part where he, he points out at one point, uh, he says, or he pretentiously announces that in many ways, the Chipotle burrito is very similar to the iPhone. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's one of that. his, yeah, that's just, I don't know. That's one of, or Iglesias muses aloud. <laughs> I'd be interested to know what, if anything, is legally or practically preventing Miami from just expanding further west. If anyone happens to know, many wrote in to point out the existence of a rather large expanse of swamp known as the Everglades. I mean, he's just so dumb. Like, Here's a great headline of a Matt Iglesias article. The case against eating lunch outside. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's incredible. Nathan Robinson um, characterizes that as intentionally irritating click hungry denunciation of some per- perfectly innocuous truth or convention yeah that is well, a vox mode for i sure. mean i can't even tell you a little personal story where i was working for a oh, yeah. political organization yeah. and i saw matt iglesias tweeting that 
people who work on campaigns should be paid even less or better yet nothing at all than they're currently paid which as someone who is like struggling to afford ramen essentially (laughs) you know uh was like jarring to me and i wrote back to him to point out that um if we did that only extremely wealthy people could participate in the work of getting candidates elected which is already the problem with politics that wealthy people have a disproportionate effect on who the candidates are who gets elected who gets through the primaries and he just like i forget but he basically just yelled at me and like (laughs) told me that you know i was you didn't understand what he was saying which when you perfectly well did it's like a libertarian argument that only people who feel the investment to do it in yeah which is again like as someone who has done that work and who's been i feel like abused by that system through that very same logic of like well you should do this because you believe in it not because i don't know you need money to live yeah you should work so much that if you were working at mcdonald's this many hours you would be much wealthier than you. yeah yeah was just like oh it was grating but anyway that was the first and last time i ever uh followed or read or engaged with inglesias you remember hearing how um so obama made those changes that got rolled back yes about yeah about the overtime yeah they changed it so that if you make like less than forty five thousand dollars, you had to be paid overtime so you would have to be paid hourly instead of salaried so you have to be paid for all the hours that you work that would have destroyed political organizations like the one that you worked at because most oh, people yeah. oh, are making God. less than 45,000 and working 60 to 80 hours. Oh, yeah. So like liberal organizations were extremely opposed every, every to this. Every organization this... that I ever worked for yeah. would have been unable to yeah. afford totally. me. Basically. But some of the nicer ones wouldn't like come out against this law, but a lot of the bigger yeah, ones, but... like the bigger one that you worked for were very opposed to this yeah. law. Be- even though they're like liberal organizations, they had to they oppose opposed... people being paid for the jobs that they do yeah they were opposed to us talking about unionizing but anyway let's not as <laughs> liberal organizations yeah. but anyway let's not uh get too far into the weeds uh as they say here uh so here's that thing you were talking about yeah, okay i don't know if you want to oh okay well who's who's talking here is this off. nathan robinson yeah okay so he says I once attended a public talk Iglesias gave on housing policy to promote his 62-page book, The Rent is Too Damn High. That's like the size of a poetry book. <laughs> was, this, was this sonnets about rent? <laughs> Iglesias was placed in conversation with Yale Law School professor Robert, Robert Ellickson, a bona fide expert on housing and zoning with approximately four decades of experience in the field. Goodness knows why anyone thought to pair the two up as Ellickson is notoriously grumpy and does not suffer fools with much equanimity. The discussion was one of the most satisfying I have seen. Ellickson clearly had no idea who Iglesias was and took pleasure in ripping Iglesias' pamphlet to shreds for its basic economic ignorance. But watching Ellickson flay Iglesias, I was most struck by the fact that Iglesias was completely unfazed. Far from being ashamed at his humiliating defeat, Iglesias did not even seem to acknowledge that he was even being defeated or humiliated. He didn't attempt to defend himself. He just kept talking as if the numerous arguments that had been made proving him wrong simply didn't exist yeah the refusal to back down or admit fault is apparently a characteristic of iglesias generally um but i think what is also interesting about this is that it seems to be a characteristic of of places like vox more generally right he he just kept talking he refused to back down 
And therefore, um, as far as he was concerned, like his points were still relevant and important, I guess. And that's kind of how Vox is. Like there have been plenty of times when there have been like very serious like mistakes that they've made that have been pointed out and they don't really bother to like even acknowledge (laughs) that those mistakes were made here. I'm trying to find... Um, from the article in the Baffler, though, there was one article where they had to, you know, issue a correction so strongly that they just put at the top of the article, this article was completely wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That idea that, like, they just keep talking or publishing or whatever, and even when they're wrong, they just kind of double down and aren't ashamed. In this article, Nathan J. Robinson talks about the lackadaisical approach to quality control, which has also led to some extraordinary factual pratfalls. So in 2014, Deadspin had fun compiling a list of 48 times Vox totally fucked up a story, including the site's infamous assertion that Israel contained a road between the West Bank and Gaza. One might have excused these as mere hiccups inevitable in a publication's early life, but six months after the year of 48 fuck-ups, the site ran an embarrassingly error-ridden attack on Seymour Hirsch, which managed to misstate the dates of both the Mylai massacre and Abu Ghraib scandal within a single paragraph. <laughs> Fox's factual unreliability is not a mere, merely a byproduct of Klein's sloppy oversight, however. It is in many ways inherent to the site's model of content production, which depends entirely on having incredibly young writers assume a position of omnipresent, omniscient, omniscient <laughs> oh my god, I cannot Sorry. read today, expertise. Um, so I think, again, this is kind of pointing out at some of the problems with Vox now going past even their problems with, like, their ideology or their blindness to their own bias and to, like, the way Vox actually functions. Um, and I know that in that Baffler article, they also talked a lot about, like, the business model and how Vox sees itself as a competitor to Wikipedia. Yeah. Maybe we can... No, no, not... Well, maybe... Yeah. Does it? Yeah. Maybe we can bring that up a little bit if we talk about their ideology um, directly. All right, well, let's talk about it. Okay. I thought you wanted to get this quote. Um, well, I mean, it's just talking about that more. Um, Vox's difficulty at getting the facts right emerges from his confidence in the wisdom of 22-year-old D. State. D- oh, my God, you just read. I don't know why I can't read today. <laughs> um, it says that... Uh... Vox is an explainer site by people who live way too much of their own lives outside reality. That's a Corey Robin quote. And he goes on to say, the Vox generation of punditry, the main qualification is that they know their way around JSTOR, yet have a broad historical amnesia that leads them to be totally oblivious to the place of contemporary events in larger patterns over time. Yeah, which I thought was interesting too, because again, let's say they do see themselves as a competitor to Wikipedia, which I do believe they talked about on the baffler website then it would make sense that they could actually take a break and pull themselves outside of the rat race and do these big explainers on things whether it's like taxation or even okay you want to do talk about policy of like how to do pre-k like give us like the context of how we've done it in the past why things have failed like long form analysis and articles on giving us like this like some broader context over why this policy is important that you could write over you know the period of months right as opposed to just trying to generate these quick clickbaity articles that 
don't actually give us any insight into anything and just spew some statistics at us, you yeah. know? Like, that's the thing that I don't understand about Vox is, like, if you do want to do explainers, why not have, like, long essays about, like, I don't know, the importance of our modern foreign policy and how it fits into, like, the our history or whatever. Yeah. Any, they don't do long-form work at all. Want to. No, they do, like, those index cards and they shit. They do clickbait. Yeah, so, I don't know. I guess that's part of why I wanted in, to talk about that. In the David Johnson article, he he talks he goes back to that beginning article that I was talking about, the um where Klein talks about the more information hypothesis. And he's like, if Vox really took this hypothesis seriously, they would try to make their website look more like Wikipedia. Because if you want to avoid biases, you need um like a wide amount of input from many different people. Mm. And um like yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's an interesting point, but I don't know how it syncs up. I don't know how what I'm saying syncs up there. Well, you wanted to talk about their ideology more directly. Yeah, I'd rather talk about that, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Well, what do you think their ideology is? Neoliberalism. It's really boring. They're so fucking boring. They just think that everything can be made more efficient if it's turned over to, like, the private market. That's why they're, like, yeah, probably, I mean, I don't really read Vox that much, but, like, probably pro-charter schools and shit like that because it's just more efficient, you know? Yeah. And they obviously think, like, that we can't afford things like universal health care because, I mean, we just talked about a few examples of them essentially trying to push-pull against it. And then they they just take on different little pet issues like didn't wasn't there one in here where they talked about um they talked about um like licensing yeah, yeah. yes so like, that's like getting a barber license or a haircutter's license yeah or... and it was like a pet project of the obama administration that they were trying to like I all of these people just heard the same planet money episode that we heard yeah. but they have like some amount of power so they took their npr fandom into the real world yeah, but it's also just serving a practical purpose, right? Where, like, if you launch a long campaign over, like, a pet issue of the Obama administration, well, guess what? You're yeah. going to be able to get an interview with Obama or Clinton for your podcast and yeah. on your website. And having that access makes you seem more relevant and credible to the people who are reading your little index cards who, you know, like the idea that you're studying for a test with this website. Like... I think their ideology beyond just, like, basic, boring, like, inside-the-beltway, you know, consensus of, like, well, cut entitlements, yeah. privatize things to make them more efficient, do do more foreign interventionism abroad, like, yeah. beyond that is just that self-interested, like, you know, be as DC insidery as possible so we can have as much access as possible. And I think that's it. Like, I think it's pretty fucking empty, which is why it's, like, dangerous especially since ultimately like what a lot of us see politics for is like building a better world yeah but if you have just this myopic self-serving ideology then you're but but a giant platform through which to broadcast it then you're you're kind of dangerous <laughs> i think their ideology is maybe deeper and broader like broader within the whole society um I don't think so. What do you think? Like, as well, Nathan J. Robinson talks about in this article, like, what do you think is like Ezra Klein's ideal world or like utopian vision for the world? Or, this one. 
yeah. exactly like this. Yeah, because this yeah. is the one where he's on top and he has power and yeah. access. Yeah, it would be like exactly saying, like, like this, but with like less voters. Like if we still had a Senate that picked the president and they were all like graduates of Ivy League schools yeah. and stuff. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know. Do they have a much broader yeah. ideology? Like... Well, there's another great quote from Nathan J-, J. Robinson here where he says, Vox treats matters of profound complexity as if they're able to be settled through mere expertise. Mm. And uh, he says, if anyone disagrees with what the wonks have concluded, they must be dumb, delusional, or both. And in another area, he says that Vox's failure to think about ends and ideals is important because it reveals the fundamental oversight of progressive wonkism. This is the idea that there ever can be such a thing as a correct and rational political solution, that one can discuss healthcare policy without discussing values and convictions. I think that's the more pervasive ideology. And I think it goes, not to be too pretentious, but I think it really, that metaphor of a computer treating humans and society like they're computers gets to the heart of it. And it's really interesting in the Baffler article that he talks about where Vox came from. And the technology that underpins it and some of the people who were involved with setting it up previously ran like a sports data website, just like, what's his face? Nate Silver. Yeah. There's this really weird... Yeah, he talks about how it's like actually infotainment or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But how weird is that, that um, these people who like circa, you know, 2000 figured out Moneyball, like, oh, in baseball, we can do statistics, um, have just taken that vision of how to understand baseball and just stretched it out into the whole world the problem with that is like baseball is a series of discrete probabilities right Mm. you have one pitcher who is the pitcher and is throwing that one batter and it's just like you know flipping a bunch of complex coins over that's the same ideology that says the free market guarantees the best outcomes because it you know it's like poker right the people it's it's the same with poker as it is with sabermetrics, people realized, you know, like um, statisticians came in and started playing poker and realized like, well, these are statistically the best moves. And I don't really have to look at my opponent's face to take a guess about whether they're bluffing or not. I can remove the human element entirely and just play the probabilities. Mm. If I know the probabilities and I play enough games, I'll come out on top. Yeah. And we see the economy the same way. We think that it's processing enough inputs that one-on-one, you know, not always the best player is going to win. But over time, with enough trade and enough activity, we're going to get the best possible outcome. And that is the mistaken view that we have of the economy. And I think in Ezra Klein's ideal world, we would transfer that diluted, you know, algorithmic view of society into democracy. And we would do whatever it takes to try to remove the messy human element from democracy as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Or maintain it, like, I mean, control it manage it i think that vox at its heart is a they view the world like hierarchically technocratically the experts should be in charge and we should listen to the experts no definitely i mean obviously that's that's how they feel that's why they they like loved hillary right like i mean they want someone who can be a good executive like a good ceo for the country you know another thing about that connection to 538 and everything in the business model In the Baffler article, he spends a lot of time talking about why Vox is successful and why it will remain successful. And that is because they are just like a successful Silicon Valley firm, basically. They've succeeded 
and delivering a very specific audience to ads, um, to advertisers. They're selling their readers more effectively to advertisers than like the traditional print media does. That ties back into the same worldview, which is that if the market is always right in the long run, then if Vox can survive in the long run, then it is virtuous, right? Then if what they have to do is like sell, make money not based on the strength of their articles, but on their ability to get information about their readers to advertisers, then they just think that there's nothing wrong with them. Well, and also if they are getting the best like advertisers like Tide and like these big companies, right? And that these are the types of companies that are lining up to advertise to their readers, then it's almost like confirmation bias. It's like, well, what we're arguing must be good and true because yeah. our readers are so valuable to advertisers and they are the type of people that these companies want to be like associated with and want to be seen as their customers, right? Like yeah. Tide wants to appeal to everyone and be seen as like a good American company. And so if they're coming to Vox to advertise, then it must mean that we have like good Americans reading yeah. our shit. You yeah, know? totally. It's also scary too when Vox starts doing native advertising. Yeah. You know, what if one day there's like an Apple sponsored ad that's like 11 reasons why it's okay that we're making our products in China. No, there's, um, there's already an example of that. Oh no. So Vox does have a really terrible example of native advertising. Um, where they had an article called The Not-Rich-Kids Guide to Graduating from College with Almost No Debt, sponsored by Discover, the industry leader in getting college students into debt. Or here's another example. Goldman Sachs sponsors Vox and Iglesias on the podcast. I'm guessing probably um, on uh, In the Weeds, unless they have a new other podcast that Iglesias is heading up he says what goldman sachs has that other online banks don't is a widely recognized brand name built on excellence in other dimensions of financial services that could help further push internet banking beyond the early adopter demographic <laughs> you know obviously in the article they're saying this really could have just come out of vox's like creative department so again here you have an example of how their advertisers are already um, a huge part of their content. Okay, okay, so I just wanted to share this example. This is act about fact-checking and whatever. This is actually from The Necessity of Credibility, which is a different Nathan J. Robinson article you can find on Current Affairs. So it says, A good example of the perils of fact-checking is seen in Donald Trump's claims over birds and wind turbines. Trump doesn't like wind turbines and frequently rails against them on Twitter and in speeches. One of his favorite points to make is that wind turbines kill birds, specifically eagles. At one point, Trump said the following. There are places for wind if you go to various places in California. Wind is killing all of the eagles. <laughs> you know, if you sh shoot an eagle, if you kill an eagle... They want you to they want to put you in jail for five years. And yet the windmills are killing hundreds and hundreds of eagles. They're killing them by the hundreds. Man, that is such a good image for Donald Trump. I know. It's tied up with all of this like liberals American. are the ones ruining America. Yeah. So this invited vigorous fact a vigorous fact check from PolitiFact, who rated the claim mostly false and said that Trump was inflating wind turbine deaths. Yet wind turbines do kill over 100 eagles per year in California, as PolitiFact admitted. 
Furthermore, eagle deaths from turbines are such a serious concern to animal welfare. Are 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 such? No, you're right. the The sentence is weird. Yeah, okay. it should be eagle deaths from turbines are a serious concern to animal welfare. Yeah, advocates. yeah. I've lost all my confidence in being able to read out loud that I'm just <laughs> <laughs> immediately certain I I read it wrong. <laughs> Save the Eagles International has reported millions of wind turbine deaths, and the Audubon Society has warned that wind turbines, while good for the environment, come with hundreds of thousands of unnecessary bird deaths. Here we can see how bias can affect fact checks. Trump was clearly correct that the wind turbines are a serious threat to birds, including endangered birds. Rating him mostly false depends on giving the least charitable possible interpretation to his words, suggesting that he meant hundreds were dying within California per year, which he did not say. And since it's actually about 116 eagles within California per year, this would be a slight exaggeration. But note, Trump's underlying point is still clearly valid. Wind turbines kill lots of birds. The Audubon Society is concerned. Trump isn't making this issue up. It exists and it's serious and his sources are perfectly sound. The context and implications of Trump's remarks make them true, even if his statistic is off marginally. So this is a story about glass houses and glass stones. In order to convince... Oh, man. (laughs) This is a story about glass houses and stones. In order to convince (laughs) people... You know that old saying, don't throw glass stones. (laughs) Ever. Okay, shut up. Shut up. I'm trying, okay? I don't know what happened to me. (laughs) Uh, okay, this is a story about glass houses and stones. In order to convince people not to believe in a disreputable, in disreputable sources, you must first give them reason to believe that you yourself are reputable. Oh, that's not what I wanted to read. <laughs> <laughs> This is what I wanted to read. It's clear why the fact checkers wouldn't want to admit Trump's point about birds and wind turbines is a good one. First, it sounds ridiculous, even though it happens to be true. Second, it's Trump, and sober-minded Democratic centrists don't like admitting that Trump is right about anything. Third, it unsettles Democratic centrist political convictions because it seems to undermine the case for green energy. It actually doesn't. One can argue that wind turbines are worth the cost in bird lives, or one can argue wind turbines should both exist and be made safer as the Audubon Society does. There's no reason to be afraid of the facts. But by refusing to admit that Trump is ever right, or at least has something resembling a point, fact checkers render themselves untrustworthy. So the reason I obviously wanted to share this with you is because one, it gets back to our point about privileging statistics over what people are saying and the context and whatever right so just because it's 116 eagles in california and not hundreds yeah well you got the statistic wrong so you're an idiot you know yeah um and then also um kind of getting back to this idea a little bit about like fake news and credibility you know i think part of the reason that we have this this issue about fake news is because like we've talked about before our institutions are failing and there's like less and less of a sense that that there that basically anyone that disagrees with you is like actually trustworthy you know i think that's yeah. really like kind of the problem that some of that fake news stuff gets at because it's like it's like such a fear that people are being led astray by people who don't agree with us that we're asking like our kind of 
you know, technocratic overlords to step in and pull out the stories that we don't agree with or don't believe are true or think come from not credible, trustworthy sources. Meanwhile, presumably some websites like Vox or PolitiFact, which present themselves as the most reputable, as, I mean, PolitiFact, this, where this story comes from, or this example anyway, is literally has fact in its name. It's obviously appealing to facts for its authority, right? Like for why we should believe in it. Um, But, but even though these websites are supposed to be beyond reproach and just fact based and whatever, it turns out that they're actually like in a lot of ways, I think leading like kind of the leading cause of like, a sense of untrustworthiness and like destabilization Mm. in our society ultimately, you know, because when everyone is, when it feels like the websites that are supposed to be beyond reproach are often using that authority to undermine a candidate you agree with, you're going to start to notice their bias and, you're going to be suspect of everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah with good reason. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so, you know, then when you're, like, like in during the Bush years, I feel like especially people would argue online with, like, conservatives and cite PolitiFact or whatever and be like, look, this is a statement that's, you know, not true. Or people would be like, well, it just took me five seconds on Snopes to <laughs> find out that this thing that people believe that, I don't know, Trump said or did or whatever is true or false. You know, people are like, I'm arguing with facts and and not and I can't believe these Trump voters aren't, you know, getting it or don't care about the facts or if they were just smarter, they could, you know, research this stuff and find the facts. And it's like, yeah. no, this really goes back to, I think, an argument that you and I um, have been making for a long time that we have to talk about our values that's really the only way to get through to each other because as you see like i hopefully from this discussion over and over again facts statistics whatever can be completely manipulated and even lead well-intentioned smart people astray and anyway no matter what you're never going to convince somebody else that your facts are the right ones because they're going to have their own facts yeah yeah so i just feel like if we could actually go through like what we were talking about earlier like when they asked those people on the poll like well you're not willing to pay enough for the programs you want but then start talking to them about like well why are these programs important well if these are your values would you be willing to pay more for them I I think I think there's like a solid chance you get further with a lot more people and if you pulled them again you know you'd have very different results about how much people are actually willing to pay like I think I think that to a large extent, the more information hypothesis is false. There's this really weird thing going on in society nowadays where like we, when we listen to the conservative Christians on the radio here, they're obsessed with facts. It's not enough for them to just have faith in Jesus and stuff. Even if they say that they need to have, they have programs dedicated to refuting atheists every week and they have that guy, the creation scientist on, all the time to talk about his facts. Well, and they love having Dr. So-and-so, yeah. this PhD, that, whatever. Yeah. Like the, That say, goes back to my theory of we're all atheists. But that's... Me too, yeah. And to say like that um, 
facts have a liberal bias isn't true. Conservatives have facts too, and they're obsessed with them just like yeah. we are. But that's why when you talk to people about values, when you say like, look, yeah. like to the conservative, by the, you know, we're all here by the grace of God. And if God thought it right to create us all human beings, you know, in his image, then just by virtue of a hu- of being a human being, don't you think it's right that we should have a certain level of dignity in society yeah. that people shouldn't lose their home yeah. because they have one medical, like unexpected medical catastrophe yeah, that, totally. you know, like when you start to appeal to people, that's what I'm saying, like based on values, like my values as an atheist are that just by virtue of being human beings, like we deserve dignity. I don't need to all the stuff about God, obviously like yeah, creating yeah. us, but I can put myself in their position totally. And find common ground with them in that way. Like, like, um, shouldn't we let in refugees? Because God said he made man in his image, not white man, not European man, not American man. Yeah, or you like... Know? And if you are just... They constantly argue the facts. They're like, well, it's you can't say that none of these refugees that we let in will commit terrorism. Yeah. That's true, we can't. But you need to make the values-based argument that these are people that we need to treat with human dignity like, you know, God wants us to. If that's yeah, the way you or like see the it. Good Samaritan story in the Bible, yeah. right? Like you take in people like yeah. people who are downtrodden and whatever and, you know, give them shelter yeah. and food. And, and selflessly. Yeah. Even if it endangers yourself, yeah. you should take care of other people. Yeah. But I think, you know, I've also told this story before about working on, you know, the the tire incinerator where I had all the facts and statistics mm-hmm. and I knew all the technical details about the incinerator, but the way that I ended up getting through to a guy who was for the incinerator and out there in, you know, in support of it was by pointing out to him that there are heavy metals in the tires. They leach into the earth and get into the groundwater and you're wearing camo. Are you a hunter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a hunter. Okay. Well, do you have kids? Do you feed the, meat to your Mm. children because the those heavy metals get into the fat of the animals that Mm. live around there and you're going to end up feeding this to your children Mm -hmm. oh oh i didn't know that no one's told me that and that was what ultimately got through to him wasn't me telling him the statistics or whatever Mm. it was like trying to find common values like look i i care about the public health and you care about your children's health like here's a really good reason why we should actually work together against basically making hunting something you care about dangerous and endangering children. Like I've been wanting to work into this conversation. I'm going to attempt it. Okay. This French theorist I've been reading, uh, Deserto, I have his book. What's it called? But I just said what it was called. I don't know. I wasn't listening. The, um, fuck. (laughs) 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 The, um, something, something of everyday something. Okay, okay, the practice of everyday life. So I was close. Uh, The first thing he says about belief is that it's an act, and it's not really about the objects of belief all the time. It's something that we do. And uh, the first thing, one thing he says about, like, political parties is that they gain all their power from what they believe and what they convince other people to believe, either about themselves or their enemies. And he also says that the main way belief is transmitted is by demonstrating that somebody else believes it and once somebody else believes it then you have license to believe it so when he's talking specifically about politics he's like the leaders that are in charge that are coming up with their ideas 
and handing it down to the rank and file. They know that they're just making stuff up, but they believe it because the people believe in them. So they start to believe in what they say if it gets, you know, a response out of the rank and file. And the rank and file know that politics is bullshit, but they but they believe in the leaders whether because of expertise or because of their ideals. And that I was having trouble making sense of that until I thought of um, why did people support Hillary Clinton yeah. in the primary? Yeah, as soon as you told me this, I was like, oh, Hillary Clinton. Yeah, yeah, primary. yeah. The argument for Hillary Clinton was, well, she's a stronger candidate. She's more electable. She's more electable. But why? Why is she more because electable? Because other people will think that she's more electable. Yeah, exactly. And um, that makes me think of a few different how many times, things. Sorry, but just how many times did you hear people say, oh, I really like Bernie, but, you know, Hillary Clinton's just more electable. Yeah. Just more people are going to be willing to vote for Hillary. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. It's if just, everybody who uh, said, I prefer Bernie's policies, just I voted know. for him, he would have Sorry, won. I just... Yeah. But I think something like that has happened with facts. Like, mm. we've we've transferred, I don't know. Well, it certainly happens amongst, like, at least, like, certain groups. Like, I was saying, like, inside the Beltway. Like, I mean, there is, like, when you read, like, David Brooks or even Matt Iglesias, who presumably would, they think they're on, like, maybe opposite sides. Like, David Brooks is mm-hmm. supposed to be more conservative and Matt Iglesias or Ezra Klein for sure sees himself as more progressive or whatever. But, like, they, regardless, like, what I think I've heard before called, like, the Washington Post consensus, too, mm-hmm. is, like, they all believe in cutting entitlement spending. They all believe that, like, foreign adventurism and, like, shows of American military yeah. might are good. Yeah. They all believe that the private sector is more efficient. You know, they all have this, like, certain beliefs that I guess it's, like, because, like, what you're saying, right? Like, because some smart educated powerful people in dc think that other smart educated people in dc feel like they should think that. and rank and file people who haven't done the work to know if it's true or not just want to believe it because they see the experts that they identify with believing it yeah yeah meanwhile a lot of experts believe and meanwhile um, a lot of people see it as bullshit yeah yeah one other example i was thinking was like um newspapers i forget who we heard saying this um I think it was just one of the Street Fight guys from the Street Fight podcast. Newspapers could choose whatever story they want to be the yeah. top story, but instead they choose what they think people oh, want yeah. to read. So then when people read the newspaper, they see what's on the top and they yeah. think that's the most important story. Yeah. Yeah. It's this and it cycle. must be because obviously other people think that this is important. Otherwise it wouldn't be on the front page. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I think this is a really interesting construction and yeah. understanding belief. I think I, it also yeah. explains... I feel like I've always known this inherently. I didn't know that yeah. someone actually theorized. Well, that's the best, like, philosophy yeah. and stuff. Yeah. When you read it and I know. it just I told you, fits like, what you... That's my whole thing with yeah. philosophy. I'm either like, ah, oh, this wasn't very useful, or... Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, when you were talking about people losing faith in uh, journalists, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, what you were using the example of PolitiFact. Yeah. Because they base their whole reason to believe in them on facts. Yeah. And if if... And if you can see because of your either ideology or whatever that one of their facts has been yeah. manipulated in a way to yeah. refute it, your ideology, the whole thing falls mm-hmm. apart. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And like the Iraq war, you've yeah. been talking about how important the – like for some reason people aren't talking enough about how much the Iraq war, I think, Abu Ghraib undermined – 
the NSA spying scandal undermined people's faith but, in journalism. Yeah, exactly. Once, Ultimately, to me, that is like the pivotal moment. I yeah. think that's when a lot of people stop actually trusting journalists. Yeah, yeah. Because, and, that, I mean, they really lost their credibility when they were just yeah. willing to and that's something about everything this, the administration said. And that's something about this new media landscape of Facebook and whatever, like, not uh, i sound so buzzwordy when i say new media landscape i just mean like it used to be you just got the newspaper delivered to you yeah you didn't know if other people didn't believe it yeah but now you're on facebook you see other people don't believe it and now you have license not to believe it yeah right because it's not just this it breaks the self-reinforcing cycle yeah and with good cause because you know they prove themselves to be wrong at least once and that in a really serious way yeah i mean in a big way it's like it's one thing to like fuck up a story even about like seymour hirsch and whatever you know it's another thing to completely so like as an entire industry so completely drop the ball that we all go in not all of us believed it but let's say as a nation that we all go into a war thinking that one thing is true only for to become sickeningly clear that it's not you know that Mm. the whole pretense of going into that war was a complete fabrication that the media whose job it is to be watchdogs you know the third estate whatever didn't do shit about like they didn't they didn't do their what we see as like their constitutional enshrined purpose the democrats have set up this impossible position where they obama got elected and he did not jail torturers he did not jail bankers he did not really give people health care. Yeah. So we lost a lot of reason to believe in him. Yeah. And the Democratic Party. Yeah. And the answer from the Democratic Party was just, you have to believe in us and because vote for us more. Because what are you going to do? You're going to have Donald Trump? Or when there's more <laughs> of us in office, then we can get it done. Right. Or if there's more of you out there talking at Obama, then he'll stop Keystone and whatever. Yeah. It sets up like an impossible cycle of belief yeah. that's never going to connect. Totally. I think also Deserto talks about how it's the act of belief that is important that's what belief is belief is not the bible um belief is not the monarchy Mm. belief is uh it's an act that shifts from object to object over time and changes in the process so we used to have faith in the monarchy and then the church upended that faith and now the monarchy had to get um you know it had to get credibility Mm. from religion and then religion lost our faith and we turned it back to the to the state, yeah. but a liberal state, a democratic yeah. state, a republic. Yeah. Um, and I think now a big important part of belief is facts. Everybody wants facts. Like we're saying, even the Christians believe yeah. in a historical Jesus. It's not they. It's not acceptable to them to not know that Jesus was real and not yeah. have factual evidence. They want to go to Israel and see where he walked. Yeah. They want to know that he was Yahshua ben Yahshua or whatever they think he is yeah. in the historical record in Rome. And I think that's one reason why we have this more information hypothesis, why that's false. Because um, facts aren't an object of belief. It's part of the act of doing belief. Mm. So whatever you're you believing, believe, you find you'll the facts find the facts. It. Yeah. yeah. So if we want to break that cycle, we have to appeal to values. Yeah. And that's not what Vox does. Vox no. keeps its values hidden and transparent. Yeah. It doesn't talk about them at all. Yeah. So there's no... Part of belief for Deserto is recitation. You have to cite what you believe and you have to say it over and over. That's why... That's how other people see it and join in with you. And that's how you reinforce it. Hmm. But Vox's beliefs are just empty. They're just um, well, belief in the experts. 
and it hides the real ideology that the experts believe in yeah which is like give power to the experts let us rule you and get out of the way yeah yeah when it's when you create a vacuum like that in your ideology then it just gets filled with power i don't know maybe i'm no that's what i think that's what i was saying literally like that's that's why i was I've been talking about, like, confronting power and stuff, and that's mm-hmm. why I felt like we needed to mention that. That's ultimately, like, we were saying, well, what's their ideology and whatever. It's like we have to talk about the power component because that's really yeah. what it ultimately boils down to is people like us who went to Ivy League schools yeah. and grad school after that and whatever, mm-hmm. we, we are the ones who should be in charge of society. Yeah. And you peons, you we can give you all the information in the world and you guys still wouldn't even know what to do with it. Yeah. So just like you said, there would be less voters and we would just get the fuck out of the way and they would be the ones who make all the important decisions for us and hopefully they would be, you know, benevolent and use statistics to make the best decisions for the most people. But, of course, they would fail completely miserably in that task because without the guidance of morals or ideals, what is the best decision? Whatever the experts say. Whatever the people in power say. But how do you... Power yeah. accrues to power. Yeah. And that's yeah. just. And that's yes. the way it should be. And that's... Be. Yeah. Yeah. And these are the 11... And Hillary was the best candidate because she had the most power. She yeah. seemed like the most powerful, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's what all this Russia paranoia is about, too. We want a powerful person that'll stand up to Putin. Yeah. That's why they're so upset at Obama after that press conference. But anyway, these are the 11 reasons why Vox is actually fascist. <laughs> Totally, totally. Yeah, we didn't know that that's where we are going to get to, but uh, yeah. So I think that's it. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, almost one hour and 30 minutes exactly. Oh my God. We might cut it back a little bit. Um, I like doing these political discussions that aren't totally of the moment. Me too. I think next, though, we'll talk about TV. Okay. For the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, we Maybe might... the Swedish TV we were talking about. Yeah, we might do like a list of shows from 2016 you may not have seen or heard of that you should check out. Yeah. Good talk. Okay. Uh, yeah. Bye. Bye.